And Joel chapter 3 is on page 915 of the Church Bible. Let's hear the word of God. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. 
keep that part of God's Word open in front of us, and uh, we'll be focusing on, uh, on that together. We were just singing, weren't we? The uh, skies will part as the trumpet sounds, hope of heaven or the fear of hell. Those are our options, and it's a, a very serious thing, so let's pray for God's help. Father, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for your word and how clearly it tells us of the truth of what will come. So we pray that you'd help us to take seriously the urgency of it, the weightiness of it, the reality of it. Help us to understand what this chapter is saying. Help us to believe it. And by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to act in line with it? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how ready are you for the big day? Uh, today's the first Sunday in Advent. We've got all the lovely things out here. I don't know if you're the kind of person who's had their Christmas tree up already for weeks. You've already had all the presents bought and wrapped and under the tree before the first frost, whether you're that sort of person, uh, or whether Christmas is sneaking up on you, uh, as if there's no way we could possibly predict when it was going to finally come. Uh, well, however ready we are, the big day is approaching. It's a day in the future, isn't it? And it, it looms large over the meantime. It's a day we need to get ready for. It's a day that we need to be prepared for. And in our time in the book of Joel over the last few weeks, we've been hearing about another day that's coming, the day of the Lord. And in some ways, it is just like Christmas. It is a wonderful thing to be looking forward to. It's a day of joy, of peace of plenty, but in other ways it is nothing like Christmas. It will be a terrible, dreadful, awful day. The people of Joel's time, if you remember, they'd experienced disaster as their land was destroyed by swarms of locusts. And even as terrible as that was, Joel warned them that the day of the Lord that was coming would be much, much worse. And they needed to take evasive action now to avoid even bigger disaster later. And as we've been reading through the book of Joel, we see that they did take that action. They did respond. They cried out to God for mercy, and he spared them. And now in this final chapter, Joel is focusing once again on that day of the Lord that's coming. And he's reassuring them of the good things that are coming now that they're back in relationship with God. But also making very clear that not everybody will be so fortunate. Chapter 3 is uh, a game of two halves, if you like. The first half all about the coming judgment on the world and the second half about the amazing blessing that's coming to God's people. And you can see how the two go together right at the start, verse 1 and 2. And it says, In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial. So we've got both of those things. We've got restoring of fortunes for God's people and terrible judgment on the nations. That is the day, the big day, which is coming. That is the day to be ready for. And we're not just told about this just out of interest. You know, if I was to say, did you know that Orthodox and Coptic Christians celebrate Christmas on the 7th of January? That might be a good bit of trivia. It's probably not going to change your plans at all. Whereas if your family says, we are getting together on 25th of December, you say, okay, well, that's the day I need to be ready for. I need to make arrangements, buy presents, get myself sorted. 
This is that sort of thing. This is a day of action. The day of the Lord should be the great priority setter. So let's find out as we look at this what that day will be like. And as we do that, be asking ourselves, am I ready for the big day? This day that's going to be a great day for some and a terrible day for others. We're going to start with the negative. We're going to spend more time in the negative because the passage spends more time there. But we will get to the positive eventually. But we need to take seriously that it will be a day of judgment. A day of judgment. We get lots of very vivid pictures here of what that will be like. The big one, though, is of God gathering together all the nations in one place. So verse 2 says, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there wasn't a valley called Jehoshaphat in Joel's day. Later on, people sort of went, oh, this is a good valley. Let's call it the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, There was a king called Jehoshaphat, but it's nothing to do with him. I don't think we're supposed to actually find it on a map. The word Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. And that's what it's about. I'm going to bring them down to the place where the Lord judges. Verse 14 refers to it as the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Now sometimes that verse has been used uh, of the need for us to make a decision to follow Jesus. We absolutely do. If you'd like to do that today, that would be fantastic. That's not what this verse is about, though. The decision in view here is God's decision. This is the valley of verdict. The decisive moment when God the judge pronounces his decision, enacts his judgment. And so in in verse 12, God says, Let them advance into the valley of the Lord judges, For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Same in verse 2. There I will put them on trial. This is the ultimate court case. Tribunal. This is sort of the Nuremberg trials that took place after World War II to finally bring to justice all the horrors that were done uh, in Nazi Germany. This is like that but bigger because see who's in the dock? It is all nations. And we get a few of those nations mentioned by name. They're ancient enemies of Israel. So we get Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, as in the Philistines, like Goliath and people like that. Edom, Egypt, that that first nation that held them as slaves. All these different nations who at different times had done different things. And just a few examples of every nation who will face the judge on that day of judgment. If it had existed at the time, the UK would be on that list. It will be on that list, as will every country on earth and every country that has ever been. Who is on trial? Everybody. And what are the crimes people are accused of? Well, the main focus is on how they've treated God's people. So verse 2 says, There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance. My people, Israel. So it's their opposition to God's people which will be exhibit A in the case against them. And it contains awful things, awful things. It says, they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. 
And then verse 6, you sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far away from their homeland. These are war crimes, aren't they? Forced displacement, that is against every international law. But at heart, it's treating people like things. Selling them as slaves. Sending them far away. Using them even as currency. You see that in verse 3? It's terrible. Giving somebody a boy as payment for a night in a brothel. Paying for a drink by giving them a girl to do what they want with. These are horrendous crimes. We're rightly appalled by this kind of thing when they come up in court cases and tribunals and things like that. And the good news is that God is appalled by that as well. About one and a half thousand people are reported as victims of human trafficking every month in the UK. One and a half thousand a month of people being treated like things to buy and sell. And God says he will not let that sort of thing go on forever. One day he will stop it entirely and justice will be done. Not just on the national scale, but on every way in which we treat people like objects to be used instead of people to love and care for. God takes this very seriously, especially when it happens to his people. We, we read the Old Testament and it is a story of God choosing a people and gathering them to be his people, putting them in a place where they would experience his blessing. And the land was divided up. You get lots of passages like that where the land is divided up and given out to each family to be their inheritance to pass down through the generations. But their enemies were opposed to God. And so they tried to undo what he was doing. Instead of gathering and uniting God's people, they would scatter them. They would divide the land. They would dish it out again to themselves as if it was theirs. But it belonged to God. And the people belonged to God. If we mess with God's people, we are messing with God. You see how God makes it personal in verse 4. When he says to these nations, Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I've done? When they, they ransacked Israel, what is it they took? See verse 5. You took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures. Everything they did to his people, the Lord takes personally. And so he asked them, do you have a problem with me? Is there an issue here? Because you seem to be holding some kind of grudge against me and trying to settle it against my people. Why are you attacking me? It's just like the Lord Jesus said to Saul in Acts chapter 9. You've got Saul who hated Christians, wanted to stamp out the church. So he was traveling around, throwing Christians in prison, having them killed, until the risen Jesus confronted him and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when Saul asks who it is he's talking to, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see, to attack believers is to attack Jesus himself. Believers in Jesus are God's people. He's, he's no longer gathering a nation in a particular land. He's gathering and uniting a people 
around his son and he's sending them out to spread the good news. So it isn't so much a gathering as a, a gathering in order to spread out with the good news, to grow the church. Those are God's plans. If we oppose that, we're trying to undo what God is doing. If we stand against Christians, we are making ourselves an enemy of God. Now, we face very little serious opposition in this country. It is growing. But even what we do face, God sees it and he cares about it. What a comfort that should be to us. What a comfort it must be for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering like this for their faith, who are abused and disowned and sacked and made homeless and imprisoned and murdered for believing what we believe. A day of judgment is coming. God is completely fair and just. But he's not impartial. He is especially concerned with how his people are treated. He will not put up with them being mistreated forever. So on that day, there will be punishment. And it will be a punishment that fits the crime. Take a look halfway through verse 4. And God says, are you repaying me for something I've done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. So justice, judgment will be retribution. It will be payback. Now, sometimes we can sort of flinch at that nowadays. You sort of retribution, that doesn't sound very nice. But it's a really important part of justice, isn't it? Um, uh, I know there's people in the room who will know a bit more about this. Prisons, uh, that makes it sound like we've got prisoners here. That's not what I mean. We may do, but uh, I was thinking about people who work in prisons. With prisons, I've dug my whole self a hole, haven't I? With prisons, uh, there's a lot of talk about rehabilitation. As if the point of it is to make people change. And that's a good thing while they're there. If we help them to, to live on the outside and even on the inside in a different way. But that isn't the main point of it. It is retribution. It is paying people back for the wrong that they have done. And we get a glimpse of that here. So as punishment for selling the people of Judah as slaves, verse 7, God says, I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah and see how you like it. This is about God's commitment to justice. Now we hate it, don't we, when something happens and nobody does anything about it. When crimes go unpunished, when victims are ignored, we worry, don't we? It's never going to be resolved. Well, listen to verse 21. The Lord says this, Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. They did not deserve to have that happen to them. So will God leave injustice unresolved? No, he will not. Now, this is a wonderful thing. Now, we so often can try and play off God's wrath against his love, as if our oh, loving God would never judge anybody. But no, it's quite the opposite. A God who never judges is a God who doesn't care, who sees these things happening and goes, oh, well, you know, win some, you lose some. No, the one true God is furious at sin precisely because he loves people. There is coming a day of judgment. End of verse 8. The Lord has spoken. The gavel bangs down. Decision is final. 
And so the word goes out in verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. This is God saying, in other words, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. In our sin, we stand against God. In the small scale, on the big scale, we stand against God and eventually God will say, fine, bring it on. Let, let's, let's do this. Let's outside right now. He's calling them to fight him. He's not just calling the soldiers. He's calling everybody. Farmers out in the field. They don't have any weapons. They're told in verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, we're more used to the Isaiah 2 version of this, where it's the other way around. Uh, beat your swords into plowshares because you won't need them anymore. Uh, that is not this. This is war. So he says, grab whatever you can, arm yourself. No one is excused from this. Even the puniest among us must come and fight. And it says, let the weakling say, I'm strong. Now, again, we sing that, don't we? Let the weak say, I am strong. Again, that's not this. This is saying, no one is excluded. Come on. And it's quite pathetic, really, that this is humanity at its strongest, this motley band of wimps armed with sticks and spades, attempting to make war on Almighty God. As every person from every nation is called down into the valley. There's something very ominous about a valley, isn't there, in this context anyway. That idea of being surrounded on all sides. That sense of tumbling down, this inevitable clash at the bottom. God says, I will bring them down in every sense. And so he says in verse 12 to those nations that are gathered, let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the nations on every side. So the soldiers come up over the top and they come down into the valley and God is there sitting down. He's not scared. He's not in the least bit threatened. He invited them. It is a trap, but not on him. He has invited them here to lose. The judge is present. The court is in session. And everybody holds their breath before the verdict comes. And when it comes, in verse 13, it is devastating. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes. For the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Now those things were used as signs of blessing in the last chapter. So if you look back to chapter 2 verse 24, those exact images are about grain and wine in abundance. Literally having threshing floors filled with grain and vats overflowing with wine. It's a wonderful thing. And now that same image is used in a deliberately disgusting way. This is supposed to turn our stomachs. A sickle. A curved blade used for chopping down corn, incredibly sharp, to slice through the stalks. The grain does not stand a chance when it comes to swing. But it is time. The harvest is ripe. This has been a long time coming. And that is what judgment will be like. And still today, somewhere in the back of people's minds, people will think about death as the grim reaper. With, uh, death itself with a large scythe to cut down. That's where that kind of idea comes from. But a modern equivalent might be death itself driving a combine harvester towards people. 
It is deliberately gruesome. But judgment is that point when God says enough is enough and he cuts sinners down. Can we feel the weight of that? The seriousness of that? The second image used there is worse. A wine press, a big vat where you would throw all the grapes and then you would take off your shoes and socks and get into the tub and stomp down all the grapes until the juices flow out. It would have been a joyful day of celebrating, get the kids in the thing and it'll be fun as we, it's time for the harvest. It's, it's a, a great day of fun. And yet, when that is turned around to say that is a picture of judgment, all the nations gathered in that valley like so many grapes. Revelation chapter 14 uses the same picture. It says this, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, that's Jesus, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of, out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. It is a deliberately revolting, terrifying image. Blood five foot deep. For nearly 200 miles. The Bible is sometimes very graphic. We're supposed to hear that and be so horrified that we will do whatever it takes to avoid it. It's like those, those pictures of diseased lungs that are now on cigarette packets. You see that packet and you might think, that's not very good advertising, is it? How am I going to buy something with a picture of a cancerous lung on it that's the point it is horrible on purpose it shows the gory reality of it so that people wouldn't smoke and this picture here in Joel 3 is supposed to have that same impact to say if that is where sin leads if that is where opposition to God leads I do not want to go there and yet that is where so many are heading as they sleepwalk towards disaster multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, millions, billions, crowds in the grip of panic, they realize, I have made my decision and now it is too late. Are you ready for the big day? As the sun, moon and stars splutter and burn out, and then in the darkness, verse 16, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the earth and the heavens will tremble. As one writer put it, the heavens and earth shake in one final spasm of destruction as everything is rattled to the core 
Judgment is going to be like a lion on the loose, like a harvest, like a wine press, like a war, a trial, payback, cosmic disaster. How many different ways does God need to say it before we notice, before we take action? Are we ready for that day? The day of the Lord will be a day of judgment. As Joel said, chapter 2, verse 11, the day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Well, in verse 16, as the universe crashes down, there are some people who are safe. We're told the earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people. So it will be a day of judgment for the nations, but the people of God, for them, it will be a day of blessing. A day of blessing, a day when the tables are turned, God's oppressed people are finally given all the security and stability that we've been longing for. It'll be a day of blessing. This is that promised restoring of our fortunes. It's more than just clearing up after the locusts. This is phenomenal blessing, undoing every terrible thing, bringing more blessing than we know what to do with. Have a look in verse 18. It says, In that day the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. If you remember the drought from chapter 1, everything was dried up. We're told the people's joy had withered away. But on that day, everything will flow again. The dry ravine becomes a riverbed. The place where acacias grow. Normally they grow in very arid ground. Instead now, the water is flowing. There is plenty. There is richness, abundance. The mountains and the hills flowing with good things, with wine with milk. That is amazing provision, isn't it? You don't need to worry about where your next meal is coming from if the hills are dripping <laughs> with food and drink. What a day of blessing. God's people satisfied. This is the, the end of thorns and thistles. This is the end of locusts, the end of suffering. Like the river that flowed in Eden, the river we're told uh, will flow in the city of God. Uh, in Revelation. Where does it come from? It flows out of the Lord's house. It comes from God. And the great joy, the greatest joy in all of this will be the nearness of God. That's the climax of the whole book at the end of verse 21. After all of this, what is the big final shout? The Lord dwells in Zion. That is the pinnacle of it. The Lord lives with his people. That's the same thing in verse 17. Then you will know, when this happens, when that judgment comes and the blessing comes, then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Then we will know for sure that God is with us and will be with us forever. A peace, security. End of verse 17. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. Same idea in verse 20. Judah will be inhabited forever. Jerusalem through all generations. Complete safety from all our enemies. Everything bad having been dealt with. 
And verse 19 drops in that little reminder that, that the flowing waters of God, of God's land, they contrast, don't they, with the wilderness for those who did us harm. That battle in the valley of decision will be the war to end all wars. In the meantime, we don't feel very secure, do we? We feel alone a lot of the time. We feel in danger. We feel as Christians that we are the ones who are missing out. But on that day, the truth is going to be revealed, isn't it? On that day, we will know, everybody will know, God is with us and he will keep us safe. The end of verse 16, it is just such a wonderful relief, isn't it? After all of that, to say the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel, a safe place to run to, a bunker, a fortress. So the storm can be raging outside, we are inside and we're safe. The battle can be going on out there, but we are safe in our refuge. It's going to be a day of blessing which ushers in eternity of blessing. That is the day for us to focus on, isn't it? And I'd argue that's the whole point of the book of Joel is to get us to prioritize that day. I suppose it's the message of the whole book. Prioritize that day. Despite how enormous it is, how rarely do we think about it? This should be the great priority setter. I once heard uh, somebody training future church leaders, but I think it applies to all of us. Organize your diary around the fact that people are heading for hell. That seriousness of that day that is coming. When the locusts came, what was Joel's message to them? Well, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. In the midst of this day now that we're suffering and struggling, prioritize that day. Let that set your agenda for today. Get ready. And even when you are ready, don't forget it. One way for us that we would be taking this seriously is to take comfort. Take comfort from it. Now, as dreadful as this is, much of chapter 3 is here to encourage us that there will be a day coming when everything is sorted out, when everything wrong is destroyed, a day of blessing when his people are made secure. So we should take comfort in that day. We should hold on to that hope. So if you are uh, someone where in your life at the minute you would say, yeah, disaster has struck. Uh, this is a locust kind of time of my life. Well, we prioritize that day and we take comfort from it. When things in the meantime seem very unfair, we prioritize that day and we're reassured this won't be like this forever. When we wonder, perhaps, whether it even makes any difference at all that we are Christians, just think of the difference it will make on that day and how glad you will be then that you're with the Lord. God will make it right in the end, so take comfort from that. But the only way we can take comfort is if we are part of God's people. So I've got to urge you, haven't I, to take refuge. Take refuge. God's people are not God's people because they are good people. 
It is because they are saved people. This is not judgment comes down on the wicked and all the wonderful great people like us are fine. No, this is judgment coming down on all nations. And the only people who are not destroyed are those who are huddled together taking refuge in him. People who were wandering off but have now returned. People who've cried out, spare us, Lord. All things we've seen so far in Joel or the bit we read last week. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So take refuge in him. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Turn away from those sins that invite this kind of judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ is the judge. He is the one holding the sickle. But he's also the saviour. He is the one who went into the valley for us, who stood on trial for us and was found guilty for us, who was cut down, who was crushed for us. So that he then invites us to take refuge in him. So that God's wrath is poured out and those of us trusting in him are safe in Christ. So are you ready for the big day? Forget Christmas. Are you ready for the big day? Have you done what you need to do now so that it no longer looms over you but actually becomes something to look forward to? The day of the Lord is near. Let's pray. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Father, we read this chapter and uh, we ought to tremble. It is a dreadful day. We want to turn away from our sin and take refuge in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that that day is coming, that you will bring justice, that you will bring blessing and security for your people, that we will have the joy of being with you forever. Please would you help each one of us to be ready for it, to be prioritizing that day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.